Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have joining us from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Alexander Shai, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Luke. It's great to be here. It, uh, it's actually it's great, it's, for, it's great for, for me to be home in Santa Fe, which is very unusual. Uh, and and you thanks just for having me from, on the show. You just returned I, from Spain, is that right? I just returned from Spain and the UK. I, I left the States in August. Were you doing the Camino? Uh, every year I lead a group on the Camino for anywhere between 30 and 60 days. This was the short year. This was the 30-day year. Uh, okay. Next next fall next fall will be sixty days. Well, and then I did some work in I did some work in and around London and and got a, a full on uh, London Christmas hit. And now I'm back in the states. Right. Okay. Good for you. Good for you. And Santa Fe is not a bad place to be. It's pretty beautiful there. I love it. I love winter here. I mean, I'm looking out right now. Snow on the ground, in the trees, blue sky, uh, temperature in the mid thirties, and it's just gorgeous. Hmm. I have been out uh, to Albuquerque a few times to see uh, Richard Rohr, but I've never made the trip over to Santa Fe, and I feel like I need to fix that at some point. You do. You, do. you, you need to come up, uh, come up an hour, come up 3,000 feet, and come to God's country. <laughs> deal, deal. We'll, we'll definitely make that happen. Well, uh, l- let me give you some background. The uh, tradition I'm a part of is the Churches of Christ. It's, uh, it's a tradition that... I had uh, David Bentley Hardo not too long ago, and I was told I gave a bad explanation for my denomination to him, so I'm not going to try to do it again. But uh, in my tradition, there is a preacher who has uh, rock star celebrity. Uh, he is a person of great status because of the influence he's had on so many people, and his name is Lynn Anderson. And Lynn Anderson has been—he's uh, probably— uh, 35, 40 years my senior, and he calls me up one day, and I don't get a whole lot of calls from Len Anderson, but he says, Luke, I'm down in San Antonio. I've, met, I've heard this guy. You need to have him on your podcast. I'm going to make it happen. And so, lo and behold, it was you. So I cannot give you a higher honor than to say he, he thinks you're a valuable person that I need to get to know. So um, I'm not saying you need to live I'm, up to that, but it, it's a lot. I, well, I'm very honored. I, I'm Len. Um, I shook his hand and had a short conversation. I had no idea. So please give him my thanks. Uh, I will. Uh, I will definitely do that. Now, there's been others who've said I need to have you on the podcast as well. Um, and and one person I think would be very grateful is I have a Lebanese friend named Rabbi Abihana who just had his first son, and you I think are the first Lebanese guest I've had on the podcast. Ah, ah. Is there a, and in full, it, in, full Lebanese? What is the the uh, the cultural blessing you would give to someone? When they become a father, is there something like that in your culture? Uh, there, there is. I'm trying to think of, of actually the Arabic phrase, uh, but it would be something like to grow in grace and wisdom. Hmm, that's good. That's good. Now you are uh, fully Lebanese, but you grew up in the South. Was it Birmingham? Is that right, Birmingham, yeah. Alabama? Yeah, my grandparents came to the United States at the turn of the old tree with my parents in their arms as infants. And for some reason, came through Ellis Island and made their way to Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham was a boom town in those early years of the 1900s. And that's where I grew up. In very difficult days in Birmingham, days where 
essentially when I grew up, the KKK uh, ran the city. Well, I, I've, I heard the heartbreaking story of your of your grandmother's home being burnt down by the KKK, and right. uh, to actually, for some of my age, I'm, I'm 38. Uh, I, I've read about the KKK. I've learned about them, but to actually know someone who firsthand experienced uh, the evil that comes from that is it, it's kind of um, far more human than I thought it was, far more realistic than I thought it was. But uh, that was your reality growing up with the KKK. It was, and that night that they burned my grandmother, or in Arabic, the name is Sitto, when they burned my Sitto's house, that, that moment is sort of the ritual visible effect. But the real difficulty of growing up under the KKK is this sense of not being able to trust anyone, because you never know whether that kindly person behind the drugstore counter uh, is putting on a hood at night. And there's this sense of you don't know who people really are. And it's been an issue that I've had to constantly work on and bring to, to prayer and, and, and reflection and psychological work my whole life is to, is to uh, start from a place of trust rather than from a place of mistrust. If you don't mind me asking a personal question, what does it mean to, to work on that? Like, how, what, is the, what is the inner work you're doing to help create a different narrative for strangers? Um, first of all, I'm aware of the issue. I'm aware that it's never going to go away. Um, I'm aware that in my practice, both spiritually and psychologically, it's about embracing it, holding it with some compassion, um, and understanding that there's space around that issue that allows me to make another choice. Hmm. Well. So you grew up uh, in Birmingham. It's a it's a boom town, but I guess the time you were there, it was tough. It was a, a bust. I guess the opposite of boom is a bust. The KKK is an ever present reality for you to navigate. And as someone who is Lebanese, I, I'm as I'm trying to put this together, I assume it means that you're always the outsider from the dominant white culture in the South. I am, and it's very odd because people look at me today and they think of me as the white village guy. But I yep. never felt that way growing up. Um, and, and I should say that the KKK in Birmingham was different than the face that they had in other parts of the South. Because the KKK in Birmingham, across the tracks, were Jews, Greeks, Italians, Lebanese, uh, Polish. Uh, they were people who had been brought into Birmingham to work in the steel mills uh, and largely were Catholic. And for both of those reasons, both socioeconomically, ethnically, and because of, of being Catholic, you were on the other side of the track, and you were considered colored. And that word colored in Birmingham did not refer only to African Americans, but to this whole larger group of people that were considered less than. Wow. Wow. And so you grew up in this world, and you grew up... Um I've heard you say this before that it's you grew up in the old way. What would you? What do you I mean did. by that? Well, because the, the other side of the of the the harm of the KKK, they gave me a gift, and the gift was that when I grew up, and I grew up in the 1950s, um, and actually today is my birthday. Uh, oh, but happy birthday! Uh, thank you. Uh, but. The Lebanese community, we were, uh, it was almost sort of an apartheid world. 
And the Lebanese had this certain part of the south side of Birmingham where we largely had to live. And we, and we created the village in the same way it was back in Lebanon for the last probably almost 2,000 years. And uh, my parents were very hard workers in our family business. So I grew up in the home and on the knee of my grandparents, my, my jiddo, my grandfather, and my sitto, my grandmother, who could not read or write. Uh, they couldn't read or write Arabic nor English. And hmm. I got the world that they grew up in in Lebanon. That was their reality, and that was what they gave to me, which was a world about poetry and metaphor. Uh, and constantly I would be asking them to translate an Arabic phrase or an Aramaic phrase into English, because Aramaic was the religion, was the language of my church on Sunday. And they would constantly say to me, oh, as they would say in the South, oh, honey, we can't do that. It's like you can't translate Arabic expression into English because it could be this or it could be that or it could be something else. And so they would sit there and they would say, just with this one word, it's like a painting. And how do you choose just one aspect to describe what a painting is about? So the gift that I really received was to see the Middle East uh, for really the way it has been for a couple of thousand years, to receive a Christianity from the Middle East, and my religious tradition in Christianity goes back into the third century, um, and to see a, a reality and a different face of Christianity than what most people in the United States would know. Because my, my Christianity was about metaphor, uh, uh, poetry, uh, smells and bells, very sensual, very sensory, and, mm -hmm. and not dogmatically driven. So we're going to get into how that uh, influences your reading of the gospel, specifically later in the conversation, but that's the way you grew up in, in the language of poetry and metaphor. Then you leave uh, Birmingham, and then you head up to South Bend, Indiana, where you study. Uh, you, you originally go as a psychology major to Notre Dame, but eventually you switch over to anthropology. And you, what's the journey that gets you to start studying theology after that? Well, so in the old Lebanese way that I was grew up, uh, when each of my two brothers and I were born, my father, the patriarch, would look at us and give us a name and give us a family responsibility. Mm -hmm. And at birth, literally minutes um, after I was born, my father looked at me and gave me the name Alexander. And Alexander is a name in my family that we know goes back at least 14 generations. And in those 14 generations, there are 11 Maronite Roman Catholic priests bearing the name Alexander. So to be given the name Alexander meant from the very first moments of taking breath that my responsibility to the family was to take my place in the role of Maronite clergy. So my whole upbringing was a, a preparation to go to seminary. And I had, as I grew up, I had sort of a psychological, theological, or spiritual bent. It fit me. But for some graced reason, 
when I was in high school, and my father, in my father's mind, after high school seminary, and that was the only choice. But I had this crazy idea that I wanted to go to Notre Dame before I went on to seminary, and I was fully accepting that I was going to seminary. But I, there was just something in me that said you had to. I had to go to college first, and so I. Literally, my father and I argued for about a year before he finally relented and allowed me to go to Notre Dame. And I went to Notre Dame as a psych major and a theology minor, uh, and also philosophy. I had a double minor in theology and philosophy. But the psych at Notre Dame in those years, and we're talking the early 1970s, was all Skinnerian, and I spent a year tracking rats in, in mazes, and I was going out of my mind, and so I, mm-hmm. I slipped out of psychology and went into anthropology, which is, mm-hmm. was, became my first great love. Hmm. So I assume that you don't like the idea of ascribing babies to be raised in a sterile box like B.F. Skinner. I guess that's not your interest. It, that's it's not my interest. Yeah, that's a very niche joke right there. Um, uh, before we get to Notre Dame, uh, the idea of your name, Alexander, being in the family for 14 generations, and the idea that at birth you can be given a, a calling or like your your vocation, and you, you obviously want to honor your father at, as one of the highest um, pursuits of your life, it seems so distant from the typical American mentality. And it's kind of like when Americans travel to Europe and you see buildings that are older than like 100 or 200 years old and you realize, oh, there's, there's some roots here that as Americans, we just don't, we don't have roots that last that long. And it seems like it's just a different perspective of, of a sense of community and family than, uh, than, than your experience. Does that make sense? Well, it, well, it is. And I mean, I was, again, because of the KKK. Uh, my family had not been given a chance to assimilate into Western culture. So I grew up understanding the value of tribe. I, under, I mean, I grew up as a son who was taught from the first moment that what the family wants is far more important than what I want. Uh, and, and, and seeing how community, tribal community, is a beautiful working together and how people pulled together for the harmony of the greater good. Uh, now, I think we can also talk later about the difficulties of tribe and why we need to go beyond a lot of tribalism. But I really got to see and experience a tribal community that as long as you agreed with what they were thinking was a beautiful expression of human relationship. The challenge is when you have an original or a different thought, yeah. Yeah. And it seems that uh, the strengths of community is that uh, having original thoughts is probably that not that uh, welcomed, whereas in the independence of most Western families, the uh, the environment is very conducive for original thought, but you also don't have the sense of connection and support. So, yeah, uh, not making a value judgment of one being better than the other, but it's definitely uh, different experiences. So you, you go off to Notre Dame, you're studying... In the, uh, in the direction that your name destined you to study. And you have a, a person who, for, for many, is this, this legend, Joseph Campbell, who was there while you were a student. Am I right? Uh, yes, although don't make it 
quite that grandiose. Um, Notre Dame offered a, 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 a springtime seminar every year that Joseph Campbell came and taught in. And when I got to be an upperclassman, I applied for and was accepted into these uh, seminars with Campbell. And so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a long semester course, but what I got from Campbell uh, in those in the three years that I was able to, to 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 hear him and study with him totally changed my whole perspective on just about everything. He blew all the doors open, and um, my father wooed the day that I ever heard about Joseph Campbell. And for me, uh, he opened up a world that I I just it, it the value is inestimable. If, if someone doesn't know the name Joseph Campbell, uh, they might have heard of the monomyth or the hero's journey. Uh, but how else would you describe uh, Joseph Campbell to someone who's never heard of him? Well, the, thing, the interesting thing about Joseph Campbell in those years is that Joseph Campbell was just this erudite, passionate little professor who came to teach for these weeks in the springtime. Nobody knew who this guy was. He, he, the, the persona of Joseph Campbell wasn't created until the Bill Moyer interviews, which didn't air until after Campbell died. Um, who he was, just he had this passion for story, and he had this, this in-his-gut knowing. It wasn't academic knowledge, although he was tremendously intellectual. But he had spent years and years and years and years decades of studying the world's sacred literature and great myths. And from this, he had distilled that every great human story, if it endures and captures us in some way and takes us forward, that every great human story is told having four parts or four acts, if you want to say. And mm-hmm. he, this, this teaching about the four-part nature of a great story, a great universal human journey that he called the journey of the hero winner or the hero. Something at that moment went into my, it went into me because exactly at that moment, I was also in my theology work in my liturgy training. And we were discovering that early Christianity, when I say early Christianity, I mean second to, to fifth centuries, really, not only named the four gospel texts, but they read them in a very particular sequence. And the particularity of the sequence is odd. And no one had ever been able to describe to me why the sequence. Everybody would say, oh, yeah, that was the sequence. And I was thinking, okay, we have these four stories in a sequence in early Christianity, and I'm sitting here, Joseph Campbell teaching me that every great story is told in four parts in a particular sequence. Is there a connection between those two things? And I heard this in 1972, and it started me on basically a 30-year search where um, I would try to force the metaphor and finally would have enough integrity, I hope, to sort of step back. Because I had this sense that if there was, if this linkage was true, that it would flow naturally. It wouldn't be something I would really have to sort of massage very much. Mm-hmm. And then in the year 2000 came the great final link in this, and there's so much between 1972 and the year 2000, but 
in the year 2000, a friend has given me this book by uh, the Reverend Robin Griffith Jones, who is master of the temple in London, and the book is called The Poor Witnesses. It's this incredible book in Christology. And I'm out at Ghost Ranch here in northern New Mexico. I've been out all day hiking, and I get back to my little cabin that night, and um, I can't go to sleep. So I thought, well, okay, I know how I, I know how I can get myself sleepy. I'll pick up this book in Christology. <laughs> and and um, no disrespect to, to Robin Griffith Jones, I opened this book. And I get about 10 pages into it, and the hair on the back of my head stands up. And this door flew open is about the best way I can describe it. And there was this entirely new vision to how the four Gospels fit together as one continuous story. And the key of what uh, Robert Griffith Jones gave me is, is that as he introduced each of the four Gospels, he has a summary at the beginning of the chapter, let's say the chapter on Matthew. He summarizes what's going on in the community of Antioch in the 70s per century at the point that this gospel is revealed or composed, whichever word uh, most fits mm-hmm. your understanding. And I read that narrative, and what we haven't said is that I also became a psychologist um, after I left seminary. And my psychological training was, uh, my main psychological training was in trauma. And I read that narrative as a psychologist and as a spiritual director, and I immediately understood the, where that was in the psychological journey of healing from trauma. And I said, let me open the Gospel of Matthew with, a lifetime of reading these words and a lifetime of praying them and a lifetime of studying them and all the hermeneutics and the theological basis behind it. And I opened the gospel and it was an oh my God experience because all of those words came alive in an entirely fresh way. And I understood in that moment, or I was given the grace to understand in that moment, how this text may have been given to a people who were deep in a moment of utter, utter, abysmal trauma. And that this text became um, the story of their trauma and their healing and their promise and the courage to move forward. So Matthew, obviously, is the first one in this reading. Uh, Mark and then John jumps up to the third spot, and then you finish with Luke. And so, as I'm understanding this, correct me uh, when I misspeak here, but Matthew, you have climbing the mountain. Uh, Mark is crossing the storms. Uh, John is going into the, the promised land. And then um, the one with the best name, which is Luke, of course, uh, finishes it up. And so, there's, there's this, this sequence that all four of them are telling the story together. And you're, you're merging... Uh, your psychological training, uh, my dad would want to know, is as a Jungian psychologist, and your you, you work with trauma, your seminary training, you, you take this this guy's book, uh, Robert Griffith Jones, and you, what, what becomes of this is what you've described as your life work, and it's a completely new angle that it seems to me, would it be fair to say, that 
the majority of Christian uh, scholars or you know even students, biblical students, haven't connected the dots on this. Is that fair to say? Uh, no one has connected the dots. I'm a little embarrassed to say that. Uh, it seems so obvious to me now. But mm-hmm. I don't know, except for my psychological and anthropological work, which undergirds my theological work, whether I would have been given the grace to see it. But yes, this is an entirely fresh avenue for how we might approach the Gospels. And I don't, this in no way discounts the incredible hermeneutics and, and scriptural research, especially the last three or four hundred years. In fact, I've used all of that material uh, in, in this fresh understanding. It's just mm-hmm. a, new, a new way to see how the text comes alive in our lives. And, yeah. and, and it's a very practical understanding. It's not, it's not ethereal, and it's not uh, an intellectual treatise alone. It's, it's why I have named the book Heart and Mind, because I want a Christianity where I can bring my intellect to my community, and I can bring my heartfelt devotion to my community. And I don't want any community that asks me to leave one outside the door. I want, can we reach for a community which which critical thinking is valued, but also we can come to our tradition and know that at base it is filled with the spirit of a deep, 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 deep truth that's beyond our looking at what any committee may have been arguing about over the choice of words. Mm-hmm. You know, as Jesus would say in John's Gospel, the true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. That it's it's not just one or the other, but the... the uh, yes. As someone described... Yes. Descri- yeah, yeah. But as the word religion, as someone break it down, is to, to re-ligament, to rebind, to, to bring people together. And I think that's um, the goal of healthy religion is to bring every component, not just your head, not just your heart, but, but all of it together. So I, I really love so, the impulse. Well, so let's bring our readers in. And uh, what I want to help us explore is, is that in this way of understanding the text, that each one of these four texts is written to a, 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 to a question that I think we all well know. And I'm, I'm describing that the entire text of Matthew from the very first word to the last word, is written to the question, how do we face change? And it tells the story of Jesus, and it tells the wisdom of Jesus about bearing on the experience of deep change in our life. And that Mark is written to the experience of how do you move through a time of great suffering? And that John is written to the experience of how do we know the experience of joy and what's its meaning? And then Luke is written to the experience of, how do I mature in serving? And when we look at that four-part sequence, and this is the sequence of early Christianity, early Christianity, and I don't understand why our scholars haven't gotten onto this, early Christianity understood that these four had to be read in a sequence, that if you just pick up Mark, you're in the middle of the story. The story starts with the first lines of Matthew, and the story ends with the last lines of Luke. And that each one of the, the experiences is the wisdom of a particular place in your life. So that here is Campbell's great hero-heroine's journey, 
where he says the first part of the great journey is hearing the summons to a, to a, to a time of growth and transformation, which I'm describing as the gospel of Matthew and this question of facing change. And then the next part of the great human journey is we face trials and obstacles, which I'm describing as the gospel of Mark and how we move through a time of tremendous suffering. And then the third part of the great human journey in Campbell's language is receiving the boon or the gift, which I'm describing as the gospel of John, whereas we receive this deep sense of joy, which is about receiving an experience of meaning. And in the meaning comes purpose. And then Campbell will say the fourth part of every great human journey is that we have to return home to the community or to our ordinary life, and we have to give the gift. And I'm saying that the gospel of Luke, which is the fourth part of the journey, is the gospel that teaches us how we give the gift uh, and how we serve greater purpose and community. And so there, there we have, first from Campbell's understanding of this human story that he describes going on in every great tradition, and now we can understand that early Christianity knew this great story, and I believe it was the thread that led them to the choice of these four texts, but not just the text alone, the sequencing of them, because the sequence tells the greater story that no one part of the gospel can tell by itself. I had uh, Tom write on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and he makes uh, an observation in his book that he uh, uh, self-identifies as something that the original audience wouldn't have been able to connect the dots. But uh, now in hindsight, we can see it, whereas they they didn't see it. And so I asked you know, Tom, I was like, hey, I... Some might make that out to be a big deal of us being able to understand something that other people before us haven't gotten to. And so it's 2,000 years later, and we're just finally now getting this. That seems like it's kind of a, you know, a big statement to make and should cause some of us to have pause. Now, he's N.T. right, so I guess he's able to do that kind of stuff, and I'm not. Um, but some might have a similar reaction to this and go, okay, the format makes sense, the, the meshing of this and the monomyth of Joseph Campbell makes sense. I can see it. But some of these questions that we're reading into uh, as the baseline for these different Gospels, it, it seems like, well, while it makes sense to me, how come others haven't connected the dots before? I mean, this is 2,000 years after the fact. How come this is just now coming to the surface? Luke, I, I mean, I, I can make some educated guesses, and I don't absolutely know. Um, yeah. But I, I know that... Uh, Starting in the 7th century, the, the Christian churches lost the four Gospels. As Europe went into the Dark Ages, education became very dim. Uh, the priest was oftentimes the only person in the village who could read and write a little bit. And what happened is, is that Christendom, today we might call Roman Catholicism, but at that point it's just basically Christendom, Rather than have four entire Gospels that a priest would have to learn how to, how to read, the Church chose 52 stories of Jesus and read those 52 stories of Jesus every Sunday, every year. So the huge body of Gospel text 
was still in the monasteries, but largely wasn't available to the people, wasn't even available to the clergy. We go on like this for a thousand years almost until we come to Martin Luther and, and Calvin. And that, this was a huge information revolution when they brought back to us the entirety of the four Gospels. But in those intervening centuries, we have lost the reality that it wasn't just four Gospels, but they had a sequence to them. And the sequence had been forgotten. And we are so Martin and Calvin start from the premise that these are the great holy stories of Jesus, which they are. But they forgot, they didn't have the chance to know, in my mind, that they served a purpose greater than simply telling us the sacred story of Jesus. They served to tell us the story of every believer of Jesus. That these stories are not about this is what Jesus did, but these stories are about this is what we too as the followers of the way will do. Jesus is teaching us in Matthew how to face change. Jesus is teaching us in Mark how to move through suffering. Jesus is teaching us in John the experience of joy and its meaning. And Jesus is teaching us in Luke Acts um, how we're going to go forth and serve. So once the sequence was lost, we were like a community standing on one leg, and you can stand on one leg beautifully, and we've been standing on one leg for 500 years. And all of our scholarship has been brought to bear on the life of Jesus without understanding what I think is a deeper basis of the text, which is the life story of a follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Jesus says it uh, very explicitly in John's Gospel, where he says, you will do even greater things than this. And the understanding is because the Spirit is in, in us, that not only will we do what Jesus did, but we will continue to do even greater things. So, yeah, I don't think Jesus' ever goal was to say, hey, just be like me, but it was to, or just to notice me, or just to worship me, but just to instead to be disciples, to be like me. And I, so I, I love that calling, and I think even a, like a, a an early reader, someone who's new to the faith, can read the four Gospels and realize that there are the same stories told with different details and different accounts and even different verbiage that's used. So there's clearly something different going on that each of these Gospels is speaking to and has a, a different end and a different purpose. And as we're entering the Christmas season, as we're in Advent, uh, obviously the, the birth story is on the forefront of many people's minds. And in light of the fact that I've heard a rumor that you might be working on a book about John's Gospel, uh, I would like to ask, let's talk about this specifically with the birth story of Jesus that Matthew and uh, yeah Matthew and Luke tell the birth story. You get four chapters between the two of them. John's gospel uh, has the poem. Mark has nothing. But let's flesh this out. Like for example, when when John begins the gospel that he tells, he he uses this poetic introduction to the life of Jesus. And in your read of John's gospel, this is about receiving joy and entering the promised land. How do we? How does that bear out in the way that Jesus' birth is kind of narrated with that cosmic poem from John 1? Okay, take a deep breath. Um, and I, I, I like to remind everyone, and I don't know whether you are in a tradition that uses the Sunday, the three-year Sunday lectionary, but for those traditions that do use the three-year Sunday lectionary, 
the prologue or the poem that starts John's gospel is the final gospel of Christmas morning. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's, really, the su- and it's really the summit gospel of Christmas Day, and yet it has none of the details of Bethlehem in it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so in the way that I'm describing the text, I go back to the community. We think that John's gospel is coming out of Ephesus, uh, which is um, is which is in Turkey on the Aegean Sea. Think it's coming late first century. We believe that Ephesus was founded either directly by Paul or by a disciple of Paul. We mm-hmm. know that Ephesus received the preaching of Paul or his disciple in the 40s of the first century. And we know that Ephesus is that one community of the four gospel communities, which is more like us today. It's as much Gentile as it is Jew. Uh, It's in a city which is culturally diverse. It's got a very lively women's community. Uh, Ephesus is filled with powerful uh, temples dedicated to, to female deities. Uh, it's also a, a place which, because of its affluence, also has more learned uh, community. And because it's the city, which is where the eastern tribal courts of the Roman Empire are, people as far away from India have to come to Ephesus to argue in, in, in the courts there. One of the other astounding things about Ephesus is Its wealth, we now know, is built on the fact that it's center of the Roman slave market. So it is, Ephesus is the tale of two cities, the the beautiful, gleaming city above ground, and the hundreds of miles of caverns underneath the city where the slaves are kept. Hmm. Into this place, the preaching of Paul about a God who is beyond tribe. And Ephesus becomes that community, that first place that we have a record of. And I would say to you, and I'm very happy to be challenged on this and to be corrected. I keep saying this, and but to my understanding and to my research, there is no place that we have a record of on the planet, no place on the planet before Ephesus which not only has the teaching about all are one before God, Judaism had the teaching that all are one before God, but nobody has gone to that second step, which is to say we are going to be a community where it no longer matters who your mama was. Bloodlines are no longer going to matter in this room, in this space. It's no longer going to matter if you're free or slave. It's no longer going to matter if you're male or female. It's no longer going to matter if you're Jew or Greek. We, We know that. The, the, that beautiful text. But no place before Ephesus, at least we have no record of any place before Ephesus, had ever tried to do it. Well, go 50 years down the road to the 90s, and what's happened is that this community that came together with almost like a beatific vision of oneness has fallen apart. Uh, they are at each other's throats. The jealousies, the greed, the old power structures, everything has come back up. And John is writing to this community to remind them of the deep experience of the oneness of the Christ from before time. And uh, if anybody needs a reference for that these days, Richard Rohr's Universal Christ uh, is a really good place to start. 
But so John understands that he's got to write a gospel to a pan-tribal community. And a pan-tribal community is, he's not going to make anybody a second-class Christian. He's not going to, in John's text, because he's trying to bring this community back together. He's not going to set Judaism above the Gentiles. He's going to say to everybody, you are a son and a daughter of the one source. And because you're a son and daughter of the one source, you now have the privilege to do this exceptional work of truly trying to create a communion from this diversity. And, and this is the critical point in John, because John is not about a uniformity. John is not about a dogmatism. John is about what happens when two people or, or 50 people or 100 people or 1,000 people or a million people come together with their unique diversity and try to create or find the grace to be in a harmony. And this is, and yes, ultimately, I will write, a, if God gives me the grace and the breath, I will write my book on the Gospel of John as the blueprint for how you form a community built upon unique human diversity, not built upon uniformity. That's good. Yeah. The, so, I mean, you, well, I was going to say, you can't even get to the first two verses of, of John 1 without hearing that all shall be able to be children of God, not because of blood, but because of the will of God. And you hear that message that's, that's far more inclusive in even just the, the beginning of the story in the way that the, that, that prologue, that, that poem would invite far more uh, acceptance and inclusion from non-Jewish people than, than the other birth stories. Well, I mean, it, it shatters every religion up to this point, because all religion up to this point is tribal, and even Judaism, at, for, for the, my deep honoring of Judaism, their understanding at this point is, we're equal, but let's be separate before God. You, know, you, you go worship Yahweh on, on your side of the wall, and we'll worship Yahweh on this side of the wall, and as a board of Birmingham, Alabama, Separate but equal will never work for me. Wow. And, uh, and so Ephesus is this place, and John is the gospel that wants to say, take the walls down. Let's understand that we are humans, that we are all brothers and sisters, that we are all sons and daughters of the one source. And I have an argument to make that Paul's argument about Paganism is not about paganism itself. It's that paganism at this point in human history is tribalism. And what Paul is saying is, you believe in Zeus? See Zeus as a partial understanding of God. Go through Zeus back to the one source. Go through Dionysus back to the one source. Don't stop at the place of our separateness. Go back to the one God which we have a deeper understanding of. And so, therefore, what John has to do in, by, again, I say John as if he's doing this himself. I really believe John is compelled by grace to do this. John has to open his gospel with this beatific vision of oneness, which goes back to the moment before the beginning of time. The breath of God 
the Logos, which in Hebrew is a 300-year concept before John uses it. And it doesn't mean word like something on the written page. Logos means veriness, allness, or everythingness. And I translate word today into breath. I think breath is a better metaphor for it. But before the beginning of time, there is God's breath. And coming forth from God is God's breath. And that breath forms the cosmos. So the cosmos is not God, but the cosmos is a visible expression of the, of the external cells of God's breath. And you and I are an expression of God's breath. And because the cosmos and I are brother and sister to each other, now we have a whole new basis for understanding worship and service. And, there, and that unlike other traditions, which do not fully, and, and this is my understanding and it's what makes me Christian, is because I see Jesus the Christ as the full physical incarnation of our God. And because of that incarnation, because our belief that Jesus helped us re-wed what was always true, that spirit and matter are one, because matter is fully fused with the cells of God's breath, that Jesus did not recreate spirit and matter being one, but Jesus helped us understand its truth. And therefore, the great mystery of Christmas Day and why John's prologue is the final great gospel of Christmas morning rather than Bethlehem is to understand that what we celebrate in Bethlehem is the truth of all time across every place of the cosmos across every cell of the planet, and that we as Christians are obligated to honor that spirit and matter are one, and Jesus the Christ is the fullness of that message and that teaching, and because we are that followers, that we are obligated to serve and honor all as brother and sister. This is the great high message of Christmas Day. That's that's really good. And... It's, it's not really my job to do this, but I feel compelled to tell you, you really need to finish that book on John's Gospel, because if it's anything like the last couple of minutes of which you were explaining, uh, I think we all need to hear it. So you better get to work on that, because we need to hear that word, too. Um, <clears throat> let me ask a practical question, and this is maybe you, you put on your uh, uh, spiritual director, uh, psychologist, counselor hat, but when someone is going through a different uh, season in life, whether they are... Uh, you know, going through uh, trials or they're leaving or coming home or whatever, do you find yourself uh, prescribing them to read different Gospels according to the life circumstance that they're in? I do. Um, as uh, For a long time, I had a spiritual direction practice. Now, because of my extensive travel, I can't do that. Um, as I sit with people, even today, just for a few hours or an hour talking to them, and I hear their question, I'll point them back to a particular gospel and to a particular text because I believe that it might have the enlivening grace in it. Um, and again, I, I really believe there is a presence in these four texts, that we come to the text initially with our mind, but that as we sink into the text, we find the grace of a presence. 
that helps us keep walking the journey. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh, the uh, The book is entitled uh, "Head and Heart." Uh, it was originally released under a different no, title. The, no, no it, it, the the title Luke is uh, "Heart and Mind." Oh, heart and mind. I'm sorry, but the uh, d- did it have a, a different title before that that you re released it? Or am yeah, I just making I, I mean, that up? No, no, no. I, I um, you know, people ask me how many books I've written. Well, I've written this particular book six times. Um, <laughs> Harper Harper had a version of this that was released in 2010 uh, that was under the title Hidden Power of the Gospel, and I mm-hmm. never really liked that title. Uh, so I finally eventually uh, got the copyright back from Harper and released this version of it in paperback and Kindle two years ago under the title Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey for Radical Transformation. And right now, and I really believe that it will come out in late January, is uh, we're, we've taken the paperback and we're going to have a hardback edition, illustrations, uh, really sort of a, almost a, a keepsake because so many ministers have said to me, Alexander, my book's falling apart. This is a book that I keep on my desk. I keep, I keep going back to over and over again. And so we are coming out with a hardbound edition. Oh, well, that's great. Uh, so that would be gen- next, next month? It, it, yes, well, I fully expect it's <laughs> going to be out before Ash Wednesday. Um, so okay. it could be out in January, but a safe bet is middle of February. We'll just uh, we'll look first quarter next year uh, sometime in there. But um, it has been an honor to talk to you. I really uh, appreciate you sharing your time with us. And... Uh, yeah, all the best. Much thanks. Thank you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>